Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. As we gather together in our churches this weekend, the church is celebrating the sixth Sunday after the Epiphany in year C. That's going to give us an Old Testament reading from Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 5 through 8, the epistle from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's primarily verses 12 to 20. The option for the congregation is to also include the beginning of the chapter to read verses 1 through 11, so basically 1 through 20. And then the gospel text is going to be from Luke chapter 6, and it's verses 17 through 26. So as we consider our Old Testament text together today, it's Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 5 through 8. This is the only part of this chapter that's going to show up in the lectionary. Uh, So I think it was 27 verses in total, and just these four are the ones that we see. So keep that in mind. It's good to read all of God's words, so give the chapter that surrounds it a read here. But basically what we see in the section, the first few verses before we get to our text, is the idea that Judah's sin, so the nation of Judah, Israel's already been defeated by Assyria at this time, so the southern kingdom of Judah is God's people. They have sin engraved on their hearts. That is how deeply vested in their sin that they are. Their children, rather than remembering Yahweh, their children remember their idols. And God tells them that they have loosened, well, they are, I think he says, you will loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you. In other words, the promised land. He gave them their own home and their own inheritance in that land. Inheritance, heritage, uh, see the the connection of the roots of those words as the word heir, right? That they are heirs of his his promise. And yet, because they have rejected it, the Lord is going to take them from that land. So then we come into our text, and it's just one paragraph, but I'm going to split it. Let's do verses 5 and 6 first, and then let's do 7 and 8. Thus says Yahweh, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from Yahweh. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Thus says Yahweh, right? So this is God's word. And the people should listen. The people in the prophet Jeremiah's day have a very bad habit of not listening to God's word, um, but this is God's word and is important nonetheless, whether the people will listen or not. So cursed is the man who trusts in man. Let's come back to that, but let's, let's do the blessing and cursed idea first. This is powerful language, right? When, when the Lord blesses you, it's not like he gives you just a, an earthly gift, right? There's, there are instances where we see some of that, right? Even in our own lives. But the distinction, the contrast between these two words has both the physical and present in mind, but also the, the spiritual and even the everlasting in mind. I mean, think of this. The man who is cursed... Because he trusts in men, he trusts in his own strength, and he turns away from Yahweh, and he dies. That's the picture here. What happens to that man? 
he dies forever, right? There is no paradise for him. There's no future hope for him. And then in the contrast, again, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, who trusts in Yahweh. What happens for the one who trusts in Yahweh? Well, he gets to be in paradise. So blessings and curses, they have a deeper connotation to them than just simply, oh, the Lord might make your day go well, right? So when your pastor speaks that blessing over you at the end of your your worship service together on a Sunday morning or whenever your, your congregation may gather, the Lord bless you and keep you, right? I mean, think of that that blessing. It's the ironic benediction from Numbers chapter 6. But think of the words there, right? The Lord bless you, keep you, right? God keeps us. That's a that's an assurance right there. That's comforting right there. Lord make his face shine upon you. That that would mean that you see him, right? He is giving you light. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Revelation talks about how paradise has no sun because God himself gives it light. So that's Job saying, My own eyes will see my Redeemer face to face. Lord, make his face shine upon you. Be gracious unto you. Grace is you know, gifts that you don't deserve. So may God give you his gifts of forgiveness and life and salvation. The Lord, make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you, the Lord look upon you with his favor and give to you his peace. So God's favor, that comes to us through Christ, that we receive all these wonderful gifts. And then the peace, which we know surpasses all understanding, the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ that reconciles us with God. Talk about a blessing. And that's a blessing you get to hear hopefully every week as you gather in the Lord's house. So a high contrast between the two, and that's what our text today is setting up, is this contrast. So why is this first man cursed? He puts his trust in man, and he makes flesh his strength. So to trust in man, governments, kings, other authorities, right? This is worshiping the created rather than the creator. A government is a curse in and of itself upon us. It is a reminder of our sinful rebellion against God that we did not want God to be our king. We threw him off. Right? That's 1 Samuel chapter 8. And at the same time, government is something that the Lord has given. There is no governing authority in this world. No governing authority in this world that does not have its authority from him. That would include the ones that we consider to be evil, right? Like um, the reign of Hitler in Germany, the reign of the terroristic tyrants in the the Middle East and various places today, um, North Korea. Those reigns are still from God. And as his people, we are commanded to honor our governors as best as we can. They have their authority from the Lord, and when the Lord gives authority, he will judge how that authority was used on the day of judgment. Wicked kings and rulers will have to answer to God for what they have done. Don't think our government's much of any better, by the way, for those of you who live in the same country that I do. Um, All earthly governments end up being wicked and evil because power 
is a terrible temptation. I mean, the United States government over the last 50 years has, they're responsible for the slaughter of 63 million children. And they're doing all kinds of mutilation to the children that live today. I, there's, there's no excuse. There's none. And yet, for some reason, we continue to trust them and to think that they actually care and that they will provide for us. They're not our source of provision. The Lord is. So, trust in man, government, kings, uh, again, any kinds of authorities, that they will be the ones to care for us. Um, one of the kind of catechetical texts that I've worked with before calls, calls God our provider, our protector, and we look for those things. When we look for those things elsewhere, it causes trouble. God provides. God protects. Protection gets into the next one, makes flesh his strength. And that's, that can be his own pride, right? That the man thinks highly of himself and what he can do, looks to his own muscles, his own skills, and thinks he can care for himself. That certainly fits. But all earthly flesh would fit this as well, to think that the community can care for him, to think that um, he does not need the Lord. I mean, Tower of Babel would fit this description as the congregation of people, right? Congregate, gather. As the congregation of people gathered together with their one language and their one voice, what did they do? They built a giant tower for themselves in order to make a name for themselves to fight back against God, almost to spite him and say, you may have flooded the, the earth once and there was nothing tall enough to survive it, but we'll survive this. What happens when man trusts in his own strength? It leads to our destruction. And both of these things, trusting in man and making flesh your strength, both of them are just symptoms of the, the third part, whose heart turns away from Yahweh. I mean, that's the key of all of this, is that where is your trust? Now, trust is the same as faith, by the way. I mean, trust is the definition of the Latin word fides, which is what gives us our English word faith. So the one who has faith in man, the one who trusts in man, versus the one who trusts in the Lord, Yahweh, and who puts his faith in Yahweh, these have turned away. And we talked about that already. The, the result of turning away from Yahweh is your own destruction. It is the, the condemnation of, of everlasting hell, the, the lake of fire, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this one is like a shrub in the desert. That's quite a picture, right? I mean, we can all envision a desert, uh, just a very dry place, sand, uh, a cracked earth because there's no, no water. Now picture a little bush or a little shrub there, nice little green thing. How long would it last as the sun beats down on it, as there's nothing for its roots to drink, right? It'll dry up, becomes parched, and it'll die without water very quickly. There are specific types of plants that the Lord has created that can survive and thrive in a desert, but little shrubs tend to not be that. So that shrub does not see any good come. Instead, it, it withers and it dies. So shall it be for the one who trusts in man instead of in Yahweh, that he will dwell in the parched places of wilderness in an uninhabited salt land, 
a salty land is going to prevent growth, right? I mean, you think of salt water, that we can't drink salt water, it's not good for us. Uh, salt, in this sense, salt is preventing anything good from growing, just like we see in the, the first part of the verse as well. So the one who turns away from the Lord dies, dies without that faith, dies without that hope. That's a connection to the epistle text, um, the idea of hope in 1 Corinthians 15. But as we see this, really it's first commandment conversation today, the idea that we should have no other gods, right? Put no one or nothing before the Lord our God. The flip to this, verse 7 and 8, Blessed is the man who trusts in Yahweh, whose trust is Yahweh. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Blessed is the man. Which one? Who trusts in Yahweh. I mean, that's your whole distinction in this text, right? Cursed is the one who trusts in man. Blessed is the one who trusts in Yahweh. Those are your choices, folks. Brothers and sisters in Christ, those are your options. Which one are you going to be? Um, and as Christians who have been given the gift of faith by the Holy Spirit, uh, while we didn't choose that gift, now that we're in, and this, this text ends up being sort of like Joshua 24, that famous passage, as for me and my house, right, we will serve Yahweh. I choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, the God of your forefathers from beyond the river, that's not going to work out for you, right? Um, so trust in the Lord. If you are trusting in, in earthly princes of any nature, uh, repent of that and put your trust in the Lord alone. For the one who does is like a tree planted by water, has plenty to drink, um, sends out... it its roots by the stream. So they, the idea of the root going down into the stream, the abundance of water compared to the parchedness of the desert. Note the contrast. I mean, the contrast just runs beautifully paralleled between these two statements. That, that tree doesn't have to fear heat. We don't have to fear the trials that come in this world, the temptations that come, the fiery darts of the evil one, to use an Ephesians 6 phrase, why not? Because Yahweh is our strength, right? Not flesh. My own flesh is not my strength. Yahweh is my strength. This is going to connect us to Romans chapter 8. That's a familiar passage, a very um, reassuring, comforting text. Let me just read Romans 8 verses 31 through 39 for you here. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, 
or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing can take your roots out of the stream of the life-giving water that Christ gives in baptism. Nothing can cause you to be overwhelmed by trial in the heat that comes. Your leaves remain green because Christ makes them green. We remain in the, in the kingdom. We remain in the church when we trust in Yahweh because Yahweh is the one who fights for us. Is such a common Old Testament theme, right? It is the Lord who gives us the strength for the day. Your mercies are new every morning. We, we trust our lives to him, and he so richly, daily, blesses us by forgiving us and by encouraging us to know that there is a paradise that awaits us. That no matter what happens to me right here and right now, I am not anxious of the year of drought because I know that the Lord provides. And if my body here should fail because Christ has tarried and has not returned. I get to be with him in that paradise. The year of drought has nothing over me. Nothing. I either am brought through it by the perseverance and, and the presence of God and his, his gifts in this place, or I perish in this place I fall asleep, to use 1 Corinthians 15 language. And because my trust is in the Lord, I get to see him face to face. I mean, there's, there is no evil in this world that the Christian must fear. Because we know what that evil does. We know its plots. We know its intentions. We know that it seeks to destroy body and soul, but that it does not have the power to do so. And that even if it does manage to destroy the body, the body will be raised. The body and soul may be separated at death, but the body will be raised, body and soul reunited on the day Christ returns, and we get to live forever. And so we go about serving the Lord. We go about being bearers of good fruit, as we see in the last little phrase here, and that's the idea that we see often in the New Testament as well, right? To talk about this picture of trees and bearing good fruit. Uh, that is to be us. We, we're not saved by our works, but we have work to do, right? There are things that God has created us to do in this place, here and now. So we're saved by grace through faith, and then we participate in the work of the kingdom because God has made us a part of his kingdom. All right, so parallel here, a, a fantastic parallel would actually be to go to Psalm, well, really it's Psalm 1, right? Um, so let me pull that up real quick. I didn't have it open. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. 
The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Remember, Psalms are the hymn book of the Old Testament. That's, that's a hymn that I just read to you, right? The Old Testament people of God sung that. And the, again, the wonderful parallel that it has all the way through to our text here. I, I told you before, we don't read any more out of Jeremiah 17 throughout the year, or actually anywhere in the three years of the lectionary. Verse 9 would preach easily in our culture today. Um, so the very next verse, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I mean, you've heard the advice, right? Maybe you've given the advice. If, if, if I ever have, uh, Lord, forgive me, repent. I repent. So you've heard the advice. Follow your heart. The heart is evil. It is the Lord who is good. Don't follow your heart. Follow Christ. And pray that the Lord transforms your heart and your mind. Right? Uh, that's Romans 12. Desperately sick. There is nothing good in me. But there is good in Christ. And praise the Lord that Christ is in me now. Uh, through the, the waters of baptism, through his, the precious word of Christ attached to that water, and the ongoing forgiveness that is given through absolution and the Lord's Supper, our desperately sick and wicked heart is forgiven and is being made new. Our epistle takes us into 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is well known as the resurrection chapter um, to the church today. It, it's specifically going to be verses 12 through 20, but the church optionally can also read 1 through 11. So I'm going to do all of it, 1 through 20, today for you on the show. Um, the lectionary is going to make use of 1 Corinthians 15 many times. Um, I don't actually have it all charted out yet to this point to tell you if it's the most frequently used chapter in Scripture, but it's up there, um, other than perhaps maybe some of those longer gospel chapters that would be divided up over several weeks. First um, Corinthians shows up, chapter 15 does, as this chapter that focuses on the resurrection. It has a tendency to show up on Easter Sunday, right? As well as just again and again throughout the year. So we focus on it much more specifically right now over the next three weeks in the season of Epiphany, just so we get it all in a stretch. But again, it comes back several times. The only verse in this 58-verse chapter that does not ever appear in the lectionary is verse 29, which is where Paul talks about the baptism of the dead. Um, the Lutheran Study Bible has a couple of good footnotes on that, suggesting that this is Paul being snarky. Like, if they don't believe that the, the dead are raised, why do they bother having rituals for their dead? Not to say that the baptism of the dead actually does anything anyway, but he's just pointing out a practice, a custom that the people in Corinth have that doesn't make any sense. So he's trying to use that that snark, perhaps, to, to be a teaching tool among that people. All right, so let's go ahead and read uh, the first part, which is just verses 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved— if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
So Paul, as he's coming out of the section about good order and worship, Paul reminds them, right? I would remind you, brothers. He reminds them of the basis of all of this. The gospel, the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He has preached this gospel to them. He has told them of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done. They have received it, right? So Paul preached, they received. You don't, you don't stumble across salvation. You don't work for it and earn it. It's a gift. It was given to Paul, and as we'll see in the next verse, he passed on what was given to him. He gave it to others. So this is yours because you have received it, and now you stand in it, right? Firm. A uh, good connection there might be back to something like Exodus uh, 13 and 14, uh, when the Israelites fear Pharaoh and his army as they're pinned against the Red Sea, and Moses tells them that they don't need to fear, that the Egyptians they see before them that day they will never see again, that they need only to be still or be silent, depending on which translation you read, that the Lord will fight for them. All they have to do is just stand there, right? Uh, They don't have to do the work the Lord will, and the Lord does. And this is the case as we think of the battle between God and the devil, the, the battle between God and sin, the battle between God and death. Jesus Christ fights the battle for you. Jesus has defeated temptation. Jesus has defeated sin, death, and the devil, and he's done it for you. You don't have to earn anything. It's a gift. Just stand there, right? Just stand in that gift. Stand in that forgiveness. Don't leave it. Don't walk away from it. That's it. By which you are being saved, that this gospel, good news, if you hold fast, As I think of that hold fast phrase, my mind jumps to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. The united to his wife sometimes talked about as clinging or holding fast. Uh, That was written in Hebrew. This is obviously not written in Hebrew. This was Greek. So it's not the same language, but a similar idea, right? The Lord commands us to cling to our, our spouse, that we never divorce them, we never leave them. We cling to them as here we're told to cling to the good news, cling to God's word, never leave it, never divorce it. To divorce means to send away. Hold fast. Like your life depends on it because in a sense your life does depend on it. What happens if you turn away from the Lord, if you abandon the gospel? It's not that you save yourself. That you have already been saved, you have already been brought in, so just stand there and, and hold on to the promise because the promise is yours through Jesus Christ. Otherwise, right, you've believed in vain. And the conversation about vain faith is coming up in verse 12, the text that all of our churches will read together. So our second paragraph here is the rest of the optional reading, verses 3 through 11. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, but then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach. And so you believed. So again, the pattern is Paul received. So what I also received, I delivered to you. Paul received it, and then Paul passed it on. And it's of first importance. There's nothing more important than this. Remember the Old Testament text, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, blessed is the one who trusts in Yahweh. So trust in Yahweh, and this is what that's about, right? First importance, first commandment, above all things, trust in God. And what has Christ done? What has God done for you? Paul spells it out. Right? These are the basic principles that we talk about as Christians. Jesus died for our sins. All of them. Forgiveness is given to us all on the cross. Jesus did not die to forgive some people, but not others. Jesus did not die so that you had to you know, buy your forgiveness with, with money so that the poor can't have forgiveness, but the rich can have all that they want. No, Christ died for our sins, all of them. He was buried, and he rose again on the third day. He did not stay dead. Death did not defeat Christ. These things are good news for the church, for us, for you, and for me. And Paul twice here says, in accordance with the scriptures, these things are not random. Jesus Christ did not just show up out of nowhere and do some new thing. Jesus Christ came and he fulfilled the things that were said about him in the Old Testament. So examples of in accordance with the scriptures for the idea that Christ died for our sins. Isaiah chapter 52 verse 13 through Isaiah chapter 53 verse 12. A familiar text for us. Well, let me read these for you here. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a dry a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, 
who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You could also go and read Psalm 22. That's a good text that we tend to lean towards on Good Friday um, as it talks about Jesus' crucifixion. So forecasted, right? Oh, no. I don't know if I want to use that word. Prophesied, clearly, in the Old Testament that the Lord Jesus, our Messiah, would suffer and die to forgive our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions, right? A plain as day. So, accordance with the scriptures, he was raised on the third day. A couple of texts for you to look at there. I mean, we already looked at one of them. Back to Isaiah 53, just verse 10b, somewhere in the middle of verse 10 here. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. So even after he's been crushed, even after he's been killed and pierced, he will yet live. His days will continue. Why? Because he rose from the dead, right? And the Lord has continued to give him offspring, which would be a reference to all the church, all the people who trust in Christ. Psalm 16, verse 10 is another one. Um, This is David writing. He wrote, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Sheol is... It's got some mixed meaning to it. Typically, though, you're thinking of the the idea of death, the grave, uh, being a hole being dug and your body being placed in it, whether that's in the ground or in a cave or, or whatever. Sheol is kind of the underworld almost in that sense. So the idea of death here, you will not, God will not abandon my soul to death. He will not let his Holy One see corruption, that is the decay of the body. It's going to be Peter in the book of Acts who uses this as he preaches to the Jews in the Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, the idea that the body of of King David is still in the ground. We know where his tomb is, so what did David mean when he wrote this? And Peter uses that to point the Jewish hearers that day to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Holy One of God is the Messiah, is Jesus, and he did not see corruption. His body did not decay because he was raised from death. So the Old Testament accounts for these things, certainly. Then we hear appearances of Christ's resurrection. The Old Testament speaks about how a matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Basically, you're not going to convict somebody of murder because, well, one person said that they saw something. Anybody could make something up just because of spite. But if you have two 
or if you have three that witness to something, well, then that becomes more relevant and is something to be taken seriously in that, that time. And so we see that in the gospel accounts when they are attempting to get Jesus in trouble on the day of, well, I guess, the evening of Maundy Thursday into Good Friday, as they have already arrested him in the garden. They're making all sorts of accusations, but they can't find two or three witnesses who agree with each other. They're making up all sorts of lies, but they can't even agree on their lies. So for a while, they're stumped until they get Jesus to basically um, point out that he is the Son of God. And then that's enough for them. Now they have multiple witnesses. So we have Paul, here in 1 Corinthians 15, appealing to the idea to the Jewish hearers, as well as to Gentile hearers also. But he's appealing to them that there are two or three witnesses to the resurrection. In fact, there are more than two or three. So there's Cephas, which is another name for Peter. Um, Simon is renamed Peter by Jesus. He's renamed Rock. Um, And that Rock word is is Greek. That's where we get Peter, Petros. But Peter is, or sorry, rock is Cephas in the Aramaic language. That's why you see that name on occasion for Peter as well. So he appeared to Cephas. He appeared to the twelve, of whom Cephas is one. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time. He appeared to James. He appeared to all the apostles, and he appeared also to me. Some interesting phrases in here. So he appeared to the 500, most of whom are still alive. What's the point of saying that? Again, two or three witnesses make a matter firm. If you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, there are hundreds of brothers who saw him, who saw the risen Christ, who saw the nail marks in his hands, right? Who saw that the scars that he bore on the cross. They saw him. Just go ask. Go talk to them yourselves. They will tell you. That's the purpose of what Paul is is getting at with that that phrase. Some of them have fallen asleep. That is, some of them have died. But, But most of them would appear to still be alive, right? Most of whom, that's what he says. Then he appeared to James. James here is a reference to the brother of Jesus, who is going to be the head of the church in Jerusalem, Um, in the the time of the book of Acts, or at least a portion of that time. And then to all of the apostles, which isn't, again, that's part of these interesting phrases here. We don't know what the New Testament requirement to be an apostle was. I mean, my best guess from what I see in Scripture is that to be an apostle meant that you had seen the risen Christ and that Jesus himself had commissioned you to go out and share the good news. And... We don't know how many of these there were. There are 16 men named apostles specifically in the New Testament, but most of them are already included in the text, right? So the 12, which at this point is not Judas Iscariot, although he was one of the 12 original apostles. They're already called apostles at that point. So you've got the 12 plus Matthias, who becomes the 12th member to replace Judas, And then you've got James, the brother of Jesus, is mentioned as an apostle in the New Testament in the book of Galatians. You also have Paul mentioned as an apostle. So that brings you to 15. 
And those are already covered. The only apostle that we know from the New Testament who hasn't been named yet in this text is Barnabas, who is called an apostle together with Paul in the book of Acts. So how many others might there have been? We don't know. Uh, We can't say. We can't really speak to that. But they're there, right? So you've got the 12, you've got more than 500, you've got James, and you've got the apostles, and you've got Paul. All of these have seen the risen Christ. There's your two or three witnesses. Paul is going to spend a little time here. Self-deprecation, right? Diminishing himself, lowering himself. He persecuted the church. That's what makes him the least of the apostles in his view. He's not worthy to be called such. He persecuted the church of God. He was attempting to get Christians killed. Verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Redeemed. Saved. It's a gift. Grace, right? Gift. Forgiveness. Paul didn't earn it. It was given to him. By God's grace, he is what he was. Is what he is. He still he still exists, right? He, Paul still is, even if he's in, in, currently asleep. And this is true of us as well. We are what we are, Christians. Not because of our work, but because of Christ's work. It's a gift by grace. We are redeemed. That's the first couple of verses of the text. So his grace toward Paul was not in vain. That is, Paul did not reject the gift. God brought Paul into the kingdom. Paul appreciated the gift, and he lived in that gift, and then he worked hard. He was diligent in serving Christ. And that is a conversation point for us as well. That as those who stand in the kingdom, by the grace of God, forgiven and welcomed into his family, that there's work to be done. And that rather than living this life for ourselves, we are called to work hard, diligently, on behalf of the Lord and his kingdom. So, verse 11, whether it was I or they, we preach, you believe. Doesn't matter who preached the gospel to you, you have it, believe it, stay in it. Hold fast, right? If Paul preached it to you, or James, or Cephas, or whoever, that's true for you today. Whoever has shared this good news with you, simply be thankful that the good news has been shared with you and hold fast to that good news. All right, so that brings us to what is actually the text for the weekend, and that's verses 12 through 20. And that's going to be divided up into two paragraphs, but the last paragraph is just verse 20. So we're just going to do it all here now. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Strong ending, right? Uh, So Paul is using some logic with them to help them overcome a struggle, a difficulty that they are having. The Corinthian church, and this is one of the primary reasons this letter was written to them, the Corinthian church is riddled with division. There are many things going on that have them divided. This is one of their divisions, and it's an odd one to me, because to me, if you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, you're not Christian. There's no point, as Paul is going to address here, but Anyway, this is one of the divisions. There are people among them who do not believe Christ rose from the dead. The Corinthian church is horrendously divided. And so Paul's making the case here. If Jesus has not risen from the dead, if no one is raised from the dead, I guess this is his starting point there in verse 12, if there is no resurrection, not even Christ is raised. If Christ is not raised, what's the point of any of this? Our preaching's in vain. Your faith is in vain. Why? Because we're stuck in our sins. He's going to get to that down in verse 17. None of this matters if there is no resurrection. None of it. Anything and everything that you do in this life, if there is no resurrection, doesn't matter. I mean, think about that for a moment. If I die today, like, I don't know, I'm driving home, I get struck with an accident or something on the road and just killed, gone. And there is no resurrection. What was the point of any of it? There's nothing next. It's just darkness. It's just, well, even not, maybe not even that. It's just non-existence. There was no point to any of this. I mean, I can give my life its own meaning. I can give it its own purpose, as the atheist does in our world today, but ultimately there's nothing there. One atheist's purpose in life could be to do good unto others so that others do good unto them, so that everybody can live happy, which appears to be the mantra of our day. But another atheist perspective might be what makes me happy is making other people unhappy. And at the end of the day, there's nothing that says that's actually wrong. If there is no resurrection of the dead, both of those two people, when they die, they don't exist anymore. They're gone. And it doesn't matter how well or unwell they they fulfilled their life's purpose because ultimately there wasn't a purpose. But there is a resurrection. That's where the text is going to end up going. Before we get to that, couple of notes he makes, verse 15, if we say Jesus is raised from the dead and there is no resurrection, we lie about God. We are false teachers. We are misrepresenting God because we claimed, we testified that he rose Jesus from the dead when he didn't. We're making stuff up about God. That's not good. Don't listen to me if I'm making up stuff about the Lord. I am a false teacher, and false teachers are to be marked and avoided, especially after they refuse to be corrected. 
if the dead are not raised, Christ is not raised. If Christ is not raised, you, you are still in your sins. Why would you still be in your sins if, if Christ hasn't been raised? I mean, he died on the cross to forgive sins, right? Well, Jesus himself said it, that he would be raised from the dead. He said it three times. That the Son of Man must suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and the elders, and on the third day he will rise. Every time he said that to his disciples, they never picked up on it. They never really noticed, right? And Jesus talked about the sign of Jonah, the idea that Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and that Jesus then would be in the belly of the earth for those, you know, the, until he's risen on the third day. Jesus tells the Pharisees about the destruction of the temple, that if they tear down that temple, he will rebuild it in three days. Jesus told his disciples, Jesus told the crowds that he would rise from the dead. So if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he's a liar. And if he's a liar, he's not perfect. If he's not perfect, his sacrifice is not good. And what he did on the cross is meaningless. Just another executed person. And if that's the case, if Jesus is a liar, if we are still stuck in our sins, then all of those who have fallen asleep trusting in Christ for forgiveness, they have truly perished. Notice the distinction. When Paul says death here, he says fell asleep, right? Falling asleep is the picture of death. So once you're asleep, once you're already dead, that you perish. That's a reference to the second death. That's the reference to, well, complete destruction, I guess in the case of the atheist, where there's non-existence. But we would, as Christians, think of hell in a spot like that instead. And so he says, verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And remember Paul. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a leader among the young Pharisee men. He had it all, as far as a Jewish person might consider. Things were going quite well for him. And he gave it up. And what did he receive in its place? Beatings? Imprisonment? Shipwrecks? All for Christ. And so if Christ is not real, that's not fair. If Christ is not God, if Christ is not perfect, if Christ is not raised, then Paul, Paul gave his life for nothing. Consider your pastor who has chosen to be a pastor for his career and to spend his life telling people about Jesus and baptizing children and serving the Lord's Supper and going to hospitals to be by the deathbed of people. There are wonderful gifts that the Lord gives to pastors, indeed. But if if Christ has not been raised, that whole calling is worthless. He has thrown his life away, right? You only get the one shot. You only get the one life. It's that YOLO phrase that's popular right now in this generation. You only live once. And he threw it away. He chose to, to spend his life on something meaningless. 
and so we're to be pitied above all. He could have done something else with his life. Paul could have kept going and enjoyed riches. And that's, I mean, that's the, the struggle with verse 19 in American Christianity today. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. There are actually groups of Christians in the United States that they'd be okay with it. They would be okay with this if Christ wasn't raised from the dead. And that's, that's not the fair way to say that. Um, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, there are Christians today who live that best life now idea that God will give you your best life now. And so their belief of Christianity is what we call the prosperity gospel, that God will bless you richly and abundantly in this life here. So for them, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, it's not a bad thing, right? They, they, they're thankful for having a wonderful life now. I would hope that those who are deceived by the prosperity gospel still have a hope in paradise, that best life is not actually now that the best life is yet to come. But at the same time, the scriptures don't promise us any of that. The prosperity gospel is a very dangerous false teaching. The scriptures actually promise us persecution and that we would suffer for the name of Jesus Christ, which we're going to see in our, our gospel text here in just a couple minutes. All of this, if Christ has not been raised, all of this does not matter. You could be rich and famous or you could be poor and starving, and it doesn't make a difference if there is no resurrection. It means nothing. Then we come to verse 20. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so we say together as Christians, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. The Easter greeting of the church today has been the greeting of the church for centuries, um, going back to the days of the early church. This is one of the most certain events in all of human history that Christ is raised from the dead. I mean, we can, there's no argumentation in our culture today over whether uh, the various Caesars, you know, like Julius Caesar, there's nobody that says Julius Caesar didn't exist. But you'll hear lots of people in our culture today say Jesus Christ never even existed that he's just made up. We have more historical evidence. If somebody's willing to actually look at evidence and be honest about evidence, we have more evidence about Jesus Christ than any other ancient event. Any of them, bar none. I mean, we have tens of thousands of manuscripts, of writings about Jesus Christ. We have evidence of Jesus Christ from outside of the scriptures from various Roman historians, from the Jewish historian Josephus, right? Why would the Jewish historian write about Christ, who is the enemy of the Jewish church, if Christ didn't exist? Why would various Roman historians talk about Christians who worship Jesus as though he were, were a god, if Jesus never existed? So we have these sorts of documents, and they are, they're helpful. We know that Christ, Jesus, we know that he lived. We know that he died. We know he was executed at the hands of the Roman government. Right? We have writings that testify to that. And then we also have writings. It's the Bible, but why discount it? 
All right, we have writings, we have multiple witnesses, eyewitnesses of the resurrection. You don't just throw out eyewitness testimony in the court of law. Why is the Bible suddenly invalid in the eyes of so many today? Their minds are darkened, their hearts are hardened, they don't want to hear the good news. Christ is raised, and again, it is the most certain event in all of history. There is no evidence otherwise. There is no, even among the atheist scholars who, who debate about the resurrection, they cannot come up with a good interpretation otherwise. Once they have looked at the history, once they've looked at the evidence and admitted Jesus lived, that he died, and that his body was then gone, they don't have a good idea for why his body was gone but they still can't bring themselves to confess the good news that Jesus rose from the dead. This is a great conversation point, and I'd love to keep going, but we do need to move on and read from our gospel reading. Christ is raised. Hallelujah. All right, shorted myself here on the gospel text time, but it's okay. We'll, we'll dig into Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 26 with the time that we do have left together. I want to note that we skip over most of chapter 5 and the beginning section of chapter 6. We don't pick those up in the lectionary at any point. So um, we started with chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 together last week, and then the rest of 5, which is Jesus cleansing a leper, healing a paralytic, calling Levi, or Matthew, to be his disciple, and that whole conversation about, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? And then into chapter 6, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, he heals the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, and then he takes, he goes up on the mountain to pray, and he calls the twelve to be his apostles. All of those things happen in between last week's reading and this week's reading, and we don't pick them up anywhere else. So as we look at the text today, we're going to do, let's do verses 17 through 19 as one section, 20 through 23 as another, and then 24 to 26 as a separate And he came down with them, and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. So he came down, Jesus came down, So he descended from that mountain that I mentioned he had gone up to pray and that he called his apostles there. So he came down from that mountain with them, the apostles, and he stood on a level place. We're not told exactly where this actually is, right? The last time a location was really mentioned was back in chapter 5, verse 1, that they were by the lake of Gennesaret, which is also known as the Sea of Galilee. We haven't had a mention of a specific location since. I mean, we've got this mountain and now this level place, but there's, it's a mountainous region. There's lots of mountains. There's lots of level, you know, plains, kinds of places that he could have been standing on here. So we don't know for certain, but he's surrounded by a crowd of his disciples and of other people too. So disciples, those who follow Jesus, those who trust Christ here, and then the multitude just of others, and they're coming from everywhere. So if he's by the Sea of Galilee still, for them to come from Jerusalem is a decent trip, right? Just like Mary and Joseph traveling from Nazareth to go down to to Bethlehem, 
we know that trip was probably 60 or 70 miles. Uh, it's a similar idea to go the opposite way here. If this is where Jesus still is by the Sea of Galilee. So that's probably a three-day journey. They've come that far to see Jesus. And we hear people are coming from the opposite direction as well. Tyre and Sidon are off to the north, the northwest. Um, they're both port cities on the Mediterranean Sea that are not part of the land of God's people. But they've come too. People are hearing about this Jesus and they're coming from all over to see him and to hear him and specifically to be healed by him. And those who are being healed includes those who are possessed by demons. I mean, notice that, right? They were cured of unclean spirits. Demon possession is treated as a sickness, an illness that Christ heals. All the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. I mean, they saw the miracles and they wanted to be a part of it. And they were. They were healed. All right, verses 20 through 22 is our next section. We're going to get a series of four blessings. And then verses 24 through 26 are going to give us a series of four woes. And these are very much parallel. So as we had in the Old Testament reading, uh, the cursed man and the blessed man, and we saw a lot of parallel contrasts going on. So we have with the blessings and, and the woes here in this section. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So Jesus teaches his disciples, which, hard to say, does that mean the twelve that he just called apostles, or does that refer to this great crowd of his disciples from verse 17? I would lean towards actually verse 17, that this is spoken to this great crowd. And he says, and we would call what follows over the rest of this chapter here, uh, the Sermon on the Plain. That's not as familiar a phrase to many Christians as Sermon on the Mount is, but Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 um, parallels this sermon here quite well, actually. If you were to read all of this sermon and go back and read that sermon, you'd see the similarities, and there's a lot of them. Uh, that sermon also started with blessings, beatitudes, as this one does here. So what are some of the blessings? Well, it's fourfold. Four blessings, then four woes. Blessed are you who are hungry now, weep now, hated now, poor now, right? These things are all present. It's what's happening to someone here in this place of brokenness and death. But then there are future tense. Well, some of the responses are future. So let's go through them one by one. So blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So you, it may look like you've got nothing, but you have the kingdom. That one's not future tense, right? Yours is the kingdom. Why? Because the kingdom is Jesus. 
and you have him. Not much else matters than that, right? You're all, you already have Christ. You already have his love for you. You already have, well, I guess, I mean, we could say it this way. You already have his forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness is about to be won for them on the cross. Yours is the kingdom of God. You don't need an earthly kingdom. You don't need all the wealth of this world. You have more than those people will ever have. And we'll come back to that in the, the woes that are to come. Hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. You know, the, the one who hungers in this world connected quite well to poverty because you can't afford the food, right? So similar to the first blessing, you might be hungry now, but you will later be satisfied. And I think the best connection point to us here on this one is going to be Revelation chapter 7, verse 16. As John is given a vision of paradise, he says, actually, the elder, which is a representative of the church, speaks to John, telling him what paradise is like. He says, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Paradise won't have hunger. It's not to say we won't eat anything in paradise, right? I mean, even verse 17 that I read too there, uh, as we see, you don't thirst anymore. Verse 17 still says that the lamb is going to guide us to springs of living water. Like sheep that drink water. We won't be dying of hunger. We won't be parched in paradise. But there is still a heavenly banquet. There is the marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom. Jesus told his disciples at the Lord's Supper that he would not drink the fruit of the vine again until he drank it with them new in his kingdom. So we shouldn't rule out food in paradise. However, what we do get to rule out is hunger. You won't hunger and you won't starve. You will be satisfied because you will live on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And that's a gift, right? This, that Revelation passage actually connects really well with our Old Testament reading from Jeremiah this weekend. Also, the idea that you will not thirst. And we saw that um, desert shrub that was parched in that parched land. Um, that won't be the case for us in paradise. Blessed are you who weep now. Weeping. We consider weeping and we think of the suffering of this world. What makes us cry? Well, uh, we grieve the death of people that we love. We, we are saddened. We mourn over the terrible tragedies that we see in this world. We cry over you know, the fighting and the broken relationships and the pains that we suffer. All of that is gone in paradise. You won't be weeping in paradise that also was in the Revelation 7 reading from verse 17, that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That shows up again later in the book of Revelation where we read that there will be no more mourning or crying in, in paradise. So, no more weeping, but laughter. Joy. Blessed are you when people hate you. When they exclude you, revile you, spurn your name as evil. I'm going to pause right there. Do any of us really like that phrase from Jesus? And really any of these blessings. 
Do we want to be poor? Do we want to be hungry? Do we want to weep? Do we want people to hate us? Do we want them to exclude us and revile us and, you know, spurn our name? We don't want those things. But maybe we should. Right? I mean, look at the contrast in the text. Uh, Maybe we should come back to that after we've read the woes. It's not just for any reason. Right? That the people hate you. That's not a blessing for any reason. But if they hate you because of the name of Jesus, then that's a blessing. If they hate you because you're a jerk, there's not a blessing to that. If they hate you because you're a thief, there's not a blessing to that. But if they hate you because you believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead and you're going to love your neighbor with that good news, if they hate you for that, you're blessed. Why? Your reward is great in heaven. And honestly, while we may not know about different levels of heaven or things like that, what things might be like there, we know enough. I can tell you your reward is great in heaven because your reward in heaven is Jesus. That you get to be with Jesus forevermore. That is reward enough. If there are other things going on in terms of levels, okay, we won't care because we'll have Christ. And we will be delighted to live with him in his kingdom forevermore. So rejoice. Rejoice when they hate you. Rejoice when they exclude you. Rejoice when they revile you. Rejoice when they spurn your name. Leap for joy. I have to pause on that one. I don't recall the last time I literally leapt for joy, right? Um, I don't have that sort of a personality. I'm not typically that excitable. So, I don't know. Maybe that's a call for me to to be more excited about the good news that is Jesus, the good news that is paradise. Rejoice because their fathers also did this to the prophets. Know that you are counted among the prophets when you are reviled because of Jesus. Um, Jeremiah would be an example of that. He came preaching the, the word of God that he was sent to preach, and they beat him, and they put him in the stocks. He continued preaching even after the exile, and they killed him for it. That one's church tradition rather than what you can actually find in Scripture like the first part was. First um, Kings chapter 18, we learn that Jezebel killed many of the prophets of the Lord. We're not given a number, but it sounds numerous. And there were usually, they were, at most times it seems like in that history period, that they did have maybe even hundreds, but at least you know tens of prophets. We just mostly only hear about a select few in Scripture. All right, so let's go to the woe section. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Woe means death. Woe is not good. Woe is a very bad thing in the Scriptures. Notice, these are the ones who have things good now. They're rich, they're full, you know, bellies are full, they have laughter now, people are speaking well of them now. 
but these things all turn. On the last day, they have already received their consolation, their good. Their good was in this life, it's not in the life to come. And that last day, they they might be full now, but they're going to hunger then. Which, again, that Revelation 7 passage says there is no hunger in paradise. So if they're hungry on the last day, it's because they're not in paradise. These are condemned, right? This is death, the second death, the death. They laugh now, but they won't laugh then because they'll they'll be in, in hell, mourning and weeping. Again, Revelation speaks of no more mourning in paradise. Woe to them when people speak well of them now, because their fathers spoke well of the false prophets. Jezebel's another example there. Um, King Ahab and his wicked wife, they kept hundreds of the prophets of Baal and Asherah in their home, fed them at their table. You come to 1 Kings chapter 22, when Ahab is getting ready to fight a battle, he invites the, the neighboring king of Judah to come and join him in that fight. And the king of Judah requests that they ask of the Lord if this is a good thing. And so Ahab has 400 men that he brings before him, and they all say, yes, go up and fight. Paraphrase. The Judean king seems to see through that a little bit, and he says, uh, isn't there another? And they do. They bring Ahab brings another guy who he, he admits never speaks well of him. And so Ahab knew. He knew he was treating false prophets who didn't actually speak for Yahweh. He knew he was treating them well, while at the same time he did not treat well the one who truly spoke for Yahweh. So that's a First Kings twenty two works well. There are other examples too, but just to give you a few. Note the contrast. Note the list. Everything is inverted. If you're poor now, you'll be rich because the kingdom of God is yours. If you're rich now, you will be poor because you've already had your wealth and you will have nothing. If you're hungry now, you will be fed. If you're well fed now, you will become hungry. Everything's turned over. Which would you rather be? Our sinful nature wants to be the woes. We want to be rich and well-fed and full of laughter and have people speak well of us now. But note the outcome for them. Don't seek after worldly gain, right? We, we are the ones, we want to be the ones who receive the blessings. You can't have it both ways. It's not, woe to you who are rich, yours is the kingdom of God. Woe to you who are full, you will be satisfied. Woe to you who laugh, you shall laugh. You know, it's, it's not a both and. There's a contrast. Those who give their life to follow Christ have life. But those who seek to save their life here in this place will lose it. Trust in Christ Blessed is the man whose trust is Yahweh. Cursed is the man whose trust is man and in in the flesh of his own strength. Come.